It's the summer of 2008. I'm in Pakistan, and I'm crying. I'm in Lahore, the capital of the Pakistani Punjab province, because my indie band that started on MySpace was now the subject of a feature-length documentary. We were in the midst of shooting in all sorts of incredible locations, including Sufi shrines, gorgeous rooftops overlooking ancient Islamic architecture, and even our own apartment, where we were throwing punk shows and having nightly jam sessions. Although I'd been going to Pakistan to see family since childhood, this particular trip felt different. I'd left a pretty dismal life back home in Massachusetts as a college dropout, and now I was doing something a little bit daring. I was in my early 20s and the co-founder of a so-called Muslim punk band that was starting to gain a small but significant reputation back in the States. We had a lot to say about a lot of stuff. It's what's called Sharia law in the USA. And people were paying attention to us. We are the Kaminas. Muslim Bollywood punk. Hard to picture perhaps, but it exists. The reason I'm crying though is because I'm staring at a portrait of my maternal grandfather, my Nana, and I'm supposed to give an interview about him for the documentary. Me, the band, and the film crew are all standing in the main courtroom of the Lahore High Court because my Nana was the mayor of Lahore in 1955. The way my mom tells it, he was sort of a legend. Right before I started weeping, a friend mentioned how similar the both of us looked. The resemblance between us has always been really strong, even though I was sporting glasses, shaggy hair, and an asymmetrical goatee. In the final edit of the documentary, you see me staring at him for a little while. Then, it abruptly cuts to a shot of me having a breakdown outside. I ran out of the room before any sort of interview could take place, because something inside me just broke apart. While outwardly there was a strong likeness, as I stared into his eyes, I felt that I was nothing like him at all. That I'd actually failed him failed my family, disgraced our family name, and my own name, Shah Jahan, one that literally means, get this, king of the world. I was anything but that. I couldn't stop getting high. I felt like I would never be a successful musician, if that was even what I wanted to be. I just believed I had no hope of making anything of myself. It was just another instance of a lifelong imposter syndrome, a lack of confidence that would always get me in the end. And on top of all of that, I was a really shitty Muslim, if I could even call myself one. This trip to Pakistan was supposed to be an escape, a fresh start of sorts. I was happy to flee America because America had changed so much in the years before. Even since the end of high school, and frankly before that too, I was never able to shake the feeling that I didn't belong. I'd come to Pakistan, the land of my ancestors, in the hopes of finally stitching together all these seemingly disparate pieces of me, but in the courthouse that day, it kind of seemed like maybe I didn't belong in Pakistan either. As the documentary wrapped up, I found myself on a plane back to JFK in New York City, exhausted and emotionally drained. Maybe things would be different when I got home. Maybe I could finally get sober. Maybe I could be a better friend, a better son, a better bandmate, a better Muslim. Men and women and children of every race and every faith. There was a new president in the White House, so maybe it wouldn't be so bad for me and other Muslims in America. 
As I stood in the immigration and customs line going over answers to questions I feared I'd be asked any minute, the agent at the counter put my passport into a plastic folder and asked me to step to the side. Fuck. America after 9-11. Living in a post-9-11 America. Phrases like these have become part of our cultural vocabulary. And in a way it makes sense. It was a day that changed everything for Americans and people all over the world. But for those of us that saw ourselves as even remotely Muslim, 9-11 did more than we could have ever imagined. Whether we liked it or not, that was the day we all became part of the Muslim world or the American Muslim community for better or for worse. And we really didn't get to choose what the hell that even meant. From Rafelion Media, I'm Shah Jahan Khan, and this is King of the World, a historical, cultural, and personal look back at the 20 years since 9-11. Episode one, 9-11. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. It was a little before 7 a.m. and I was running late for school. I quickly padded my pockets to make sure I had my most prized possession, my $4 tin of Camel Turkish Gold cigarettes, and hopped into my family's minivan. Saj, you had a Ford Windstar? That's correct, Ford Windstar LX. That's my high school friend Eric, who lived just a few houses down from me on Liberty Square Road in Boxborough, Massachusetts, and he's definitely right about the minivan. It was the 1995 Ford Windstar Deluxe model that included two rear bucket seats to prevent my sisters and I from fighting with each other on road trips, and a custom champagne and wintergreen trim paint job because my dad wanted to sport a newfangled color combo. Ford Windstar, created for the most important people in the world. Once I grabbed Eric, we drove to school, just one town over in Acton. There's a joke about Boxborough being such an insignificant place that it had to attach itself to Acton, the real town next door. So the two towns combined to form Acton-Boxborough, which we all called AB. AB, one right next to the other in the middle of Massachusetts. B was basically a microcosm of A. Quiet suburbs of Boston where you wouldn't think anything bad happened, where folks basically grew up together, and where downtown meant a gas station, pizza shop, and maybe the Kmart. In Acton, there was a bullet drum, a severely toned-down version of Chuck E. Cheese, and in Boxborough, there was video signals, a place you could count on finding at least three VHS copies of whatever movie you wanted. You might even say that Boxborough was like the insecure little sibling, always looking at Acton for cues on how to be cool. AB was a completely different world than the one that my parents came from, two different cities on opposite sides of Pakistan that could not have been less alike. Education and opportunity is what brought them to America like so many others. What is your first memory of being in the U.S.? Well, I know exactly the date on which I landed at New York Airport, February 3rd, February 1974. And while I was waiting to collect my luggage, I found out that my suitcase, which had all my clothes and everything, uh, has been left at London Airport. So I only had a handbag and the um, not very warm clothes. On me, it was a February night. My dad, Malik, who we call Aga, ended up coming to MIT after getting into a handful of other top-tier schools. My parents were married in 1979, and that was when my mother, Tina, but who I call Amma, 
emigrated as well, the only one of her siblings that settled outside Pakistan. Coming from the warm weather of Pakistan, Boston winters were quite a shock to her. It was minus 20 degrees outside, and there was ice everywhere, and I was wearing these sandals, which couldn't, like, I couldn't even walk for a second, and my eyes were watering, and the water was coming out of my eyes. I couldn't see anything, and my feet were slipping around, and I just kept thinking, the sun is out. How come it's so cold? even while the sun is out. I just couldn't get over that. And it's been 42 years, and I can never forget that walk. My parents were one of a handful of South Asian families in the area, so most of their social circle became centered around the Pakistani community of Greater Boston, and the city started to feel more like home. I came into the picture in 1983, one year after my dad finished his PhD, and that was the day my dad bought a Canon A1, a cutting-edge camera at that time. We're really lucky because our lives are like way more documented than your average family. Aga has tens of thousands of images of every event, big or small, from those first years all the way up until now, with doubles even, so that he could frame one set and send another home to Pakistan every now and then to show what our life was like here. You can follow a comprehensive timeline of our family just by moving along the walls of our home. My parents eventually had two more kids, my sisters Mariam and Noor Jahan, and decided to move to A.B., to get that quintessential American house in the suburbs. The house they ended up choosing was a cozy two-story gray thing with a long downward sloping driveway, a big yard, and woods behind it. Pretty much a standard modest home for the area. All right, so we are on Liberty Square Road, approaching from the Littleton side. And oh my God, there's the house, 387 Liberty Square Road. It is this disgusting puke yellow color now. Uh, it used to be a very, very lovely blue. Um, but yeah, there it is. It was hard at first for my parents to get to know people. Unlike their apartment in the city, in AB, you really had to make an effort because all the houses were so spread out. But they were determined to give their kids the best possible education that they could. And like many other American suburbs, it was the schools in AB that really tied things together. Boxborough, Massachusetts is a small, thriving community located at the crossroads of Interstate 495 and Route 111. Its excellent school system, high-quality housing, convenient location, and scenic, historic, and rural character make Boxborough an attractive community in which to live and work. That's where they started to meet the overwhelmingly white parents of the other kids in the area. When the kids started going to school, at that time, my kids were the only brown kids in Acton Boxborough. Especially in Boxborough. The only one other person which was... Indian was Priya, who was Mariam's class fellow. Shah Jahan never had any brown guy in his class in uh, Boxborough. But the thing is that for us, that's what we expected, that we are going to go to a place, it is in America, and probably there'll be just white people over there. Once I started going to school, I felt different from the other kids right away. When you were in, I think, first grade or kindergarten, kindergarten maybe, one day you came to me, and you said, Amma, can you wash my hands uh, with some soap so that they become white like everybody else's? And uh, I just laughed because I always make a joke out of serious things, but I make a joke just to get over with it. So I said, Beta, that soap has not yet been invented, which will clean your hands. So you have to live with these brown hands. But that is one thing which was only you. Mariam and Nuna never felt conscious being brown. 
but i think you always from being very little because i think mariam had priya as her class fellow so that was another brown person so and you never had anybody in your class who was brown so that's why i think you were more sensitive with the brown color from those early years my mom wanted to make sure her kids grew up not just as americans but as pakistanis too my parents community of pakistani immigrant friends were all now beginning to have families and they all became our extended family since most of our actual relatives were back in Pakistan. This is the case for a lot of immigrant communities in America. But you know how in like a lot of cities you have a Chinatown or Little Italy where a lot of those immigrant families lived? The Pakistani immigrant community in Boston didn't exactly create their own little enclave. Instead, they spread out all across the greater Boston metro area. So my earliest memories are of making long drives to other towns all over Massachusetts every weekend night to big Pakistani style potluck dinner parties where the parents would socialize and the children would just be running rampant. And while I definitely had a few friends at these get-togethers, we'd play outside, play video games, drink too much coke. I remember even at a young age feeling a huge disconnect between my so-called community friends who were mostly Muslim and brown and my school friends who were almost entirely white and non-Muslim. If you could maybe just describe like who I was in high school that you can remember. And you can be okay. as brutally honest as you'd like, whatever you want to say. When I think of Bhai in high school, I think of me in ninth grade and you in 11th grade. So I don't want to say unmotivated because I don't think it was that. So something less than that. My sister Mariam is the middle kid of us three siblings. I mean, you had your group of friends, but you weren't necessarily like, like all of them, but you were with all of them. Do you know what I mean? And so- um, Can you expand you know, on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Like it, I mean, your friends were like, just like a group of like regular white guys who lived in this small town where we grew up. So, um, you know, and that wasn't exactly who you were or who we were. Like, I mean, we, we didn't do a lot of um, white stuff growing up. <laughs> my sister, Mariam, she's definitely someone that's been a stabilizing presence in my life. And the fact that she's a successful, well-adjusted lawyer makes a lot of sense to me. I've always seen her as someone who was really adept at navigating the different parts of herself. Somebody that was pretty early on able to decide who she was going to be and stick with it. You know, even like when we were kids, we didn't do Christmas. We didn't do like, you You had your friends, but you weren't always like them. Uh -huh. And so, and I felt like, I was a little different because like I had my school friends, but then I had a separate group of like Muslim Desi friends who I hung out with. I felt like you didn't always have that. Um, so maybe that's why I kind of thought of you as like, with your friends, but not really like them so much. The word Desi basically means from the country in the context of South Asia or the Indian subcontinent and the surrounding countries, and is kind of like an adjective that gets attached to lots of different stuff, like food, clothes, and in this case, people. We were really fortunate to have spent much of our childhood traveling to Pakistan to see my extended family. Being in touch with our roots was super important to my parents, and I'm grateful that they instilled this in us. I spoke Urdu pretty well, and even understood a little Punjabi. But as I got older, those social disconnects between being American and Pakistani were really starting to take up a lot of emotional and mental space in my head. How do you identify? How do I? If, if someone were to ask you, like, who are you? Like, what would you say? Then I'd basically tell them, you know, that I am uh, from Pakistan originally. I was born and raised over there. That's my specific identification as part of an ethnic community in here. But I also belong to a larger community called the Muslims because I'm Muslim by faith. From day one, when I came to this country, 
because when i was in pakistan i didn't have to identify myself to anybody so the identification came along when i came over here and up till now it's been 42 years since i have been over here the best identification that i would give about myself and introduce myself to somebody is that my name is tina i'm from pakistan and i'm a muslim it's interesting that neither amma nor aga identify as american even though they are both proud american citizens and have lived here much longer than pakistan when i'm asked about my identity or where i'm really from and depending on if i really want to have that conversation i'll usually say pakistani american but i won't always say muslim the way both of them did even today there's something about pinpointing that which is hard for me maybe because i don't practice all that much in a ritualistic sense but i also don't want to abandon it so sometimes i'll hide behind a vague i grew up muslim by the time i was 17 and entering senior year though i had pretty much tuned religion out of my life being a muslim really isn't that big a deal when it comes down to it it's just a religion or set of beliefs and practices like any other literally one in four people in the world are muslim and it's the third largest religious group in america having been here since slaves were first brought over and some say even before that and despite what you might hear in the media there's not one definitive way to be muslim but i didn't really know that as a kid the point is just like anything else it means different things to different people and manifests itself in distinct ways my parents just grew up in a place where islam was more visible and more a part of one's daily life My parents wanted us to believe in the basic tenets of Islam, fast during Ramadan, pray more often than I did, and be active in our mosque. To me, in my small American town, I just couldn't fit Islam into my life, not the way my parents wanted. I found going to Sunday school at the mosque to be a chore, aside from the Domino's pizza and Dunkin' Donuts munchkins. I just fixated on the two big no's that were relevant to my life at that age: no drinking and no dating. Just to be clear, even those depend on which Muslim you're talking to, but we're talking about me now. And there was nothing about being either Pakistani or Muslim that I was particularly proud of in school. Definitely not around our hometown. AB was one of those places where things were just easier if you blended in, did your homework, played a sport or did an extracurricular activity, and then went on to college. It was like a super high-pressure place to be in, and not just for me, but for my mom too. One thing that I really wanted and it didn't come along was i tried to put you in all kinds of sports but you never showed interest in sports and it was so strange that the, the thing is that if anybody knows acton box bro it is a place where if your kid is not in sports you just don't belong to that city and that is what was the pressure which was on me it's not that i was bad at sports in fact i was actually pretty damn good at get this figure skating of all things second double axel amazing speed into that flip no hesitation ice skating is one you did show interest but that also was a little bit discouraging in this way you were good at it but out of the 15 people 14 were girls and you were the only boy but you still kept doing it yeah i kept doing it until i realized all the other boys were playing hockey the one game my mom wouldn't let me play because she thought it was too dangerous being in pakistan sports were never that big a deal in pakistan when you went to schools or colleges acton boxboro was one of the reasons which i always felt that oh my god i wanted him to be an athlete i want but that was not what i wanted you to be it was just because everybody kept saying that a kid has to be good in sports i didn't then and i still don't give a shit about sports 
sports is such a huge deal to so many people, especially in Boston, that not being like all about the Red Sox, Celtics, or Patriots definitely leaves you out of many conversations. It wasn't just sports, though. The other big thing in AB was doing well in school, getting into the best classes and then going to the best colleges. And neither me nor my mom really got the hang of that stuff either. Every time I would get together with any of those parents, I would always feel that I think I don't know what I'm doing. And I think they know more than me because they would talk all the time about school. Like, I don't know whether it was a pressure which I felt because I had not gone through this school system. If I would have been born and raised over here, maybe I wouldn't have felt that. But on the whole, Acton Boxborough, I always felt was full of pressures. It's a pressure a lot of immigrant parents probably feel, especially those that send their kids to schools where they're clearly in the minority. I was depressed just being around them. Because the thing is, I didn't know actually how the system works, how the schools work, because to like... Why do you go and see the counselor so many times? What do you talk with the school counselor about? How do you put your son or girl or whatever in these courses which take them to good schools? Or I didn't know all of this. So I always felt the pressure that there is too much going on in the school system which I don't understand. Maybe sports and academics wasn't for me, but a few years before I got to high school, I did find my thing. The thing that I did better than most of the other kids, and that made me feel like I belonged somewhere. That thing was the electric guitar. When I think of our childhood, I think of when you and I used to wrestle, <laughs> which I think is worthwhile because you are seven years older than me, but because I was so chunky, I could take you pretty hard. Aww. And because you were so scrawny. <laughs> That's my younger sister, Noorjahan, who is, in many ways, the polar opposite of me. She's super regimented, has spreadsheets for like every day of the week, and is a fiercely independent thinker who gets shit done. Like done, done. I remember wrestling, and we, I think you used to say, you want to wrestle, which yes, I don't know I totally remember that. from, I don't but either. I remember that very vividly. Like Nickelodeon or something. Nuna which is what we all call her at home. It was only like five or six when I got my first electric guitar in 1998 as a present for a ceremony called an Amin, which is when a Muslim finishes reading the Quran for the first time. It's really the one big truly religious thing I did growing up. My parents rented a church near our house and threw a big party for the Pakistani community to celebrate. I remember like there were lots of people there. I had to get dressed up and like, I don't know. I just, I, I think as a younger sibling, I was like, oh, like this is a big deal. And I think you found out that you were getting a guitar before, although maybe I'm remembering that wrong. I think my memory is also skewed because I remember the picture of you getting the guitar at the Amin. So I can't remember if that's me remembering the time or yeah. me seeing the picture and pretending that's a memory. Nuna's memory here is actually pretty right on. The picture she's talking about is me with a massive smile from ear to ear, mushroom haircut, big-ass glasses, and a radiant, sweaty face from having jumped up and down at the sight of a brand-new red Fender Strat. I remember tearing the box open, getting a waft of the crisp rosewood fingerboard as I peeled away the plastic lining. 
I plugged the 5-foot cable into the tiny 10-watt practice amp, flipped on the distortion switch, and rocked the fuck out of that little church office room, pausing only to take the photo Nuno was just talking about. Standing there in my shalwar kameez, my superfly Pakistani clothes with my parents, I'm far less concerned with having finished an important Muslim rite of passage, and more so relieved that maybe, just maybe, I won't have to stress so much about not caring about sports now. Maybe I'll finally be a cool kid. Interestingly enough, in that photo, I also see like a visual representation of the cognitive dissonance between my being Pakistani, Muslim, and American. I remember reading the Quran with my mom as a kid. She would have it way up in a cabinet so that it was above everything else. It was wrapped in this bright purple velvety cloth that was secured with a piece of red lace and kept in the same place as a lot of her cooking stuff, so it would always have this really beautiful smell that reminded me of Pakistan. But we were reading it together in Arabic, a language that neither of us spoke or really understood. We weren't reading the English translation, and I definitely wasn't paying attention in Sunday school when the teachers were going over what some of it actually meant. It took years to complete. It's like really long. Like really long. And I definitely was just going through the motions as I got older, to get it done and get my epic gift. I'd been not so secretly begging for an electric guitar for several years by that point. My love of music definitely comes from my dad and his vast collection of cassette tapes. Everything from classical South Asian stuff, all the way to Chuck Berry and Johnny Cash. He basically could have run his own mixtape distribution service. But the last thing he wanted when I started playing guitar was to pursue it seriously and have it get in the way of school. But I fucking loved it, and I took to it like other kids in my classes took to their homework. As high school got more and more challenging, I became less and less interested in anything that wasn't related to music. I'd found my purpose in life. Or at least that's what I thought, as Eric and I were driving to school the morning of September 11th. Once we parked the Windstar in the school parking lot, Eric and I rolled into the hallway, put our shit into our lockers, and stood around with the rest of our crew until the bell rang. First class of the day was calculus with Mrs. V. By this time, A.B. had a few other Daisy kids, including a few who were in the honors calc class. And even though mine was technically accelerated enriched advanced placement, I was definitely one of the least accelerated or advanced students in that class. See, the other thing that had become a routine, even an identity of sorts, was getting high. Marty's story is like many of the others. It started with marijuana cigarettes. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. By this point, I'd started to smoke weed pretty regularly after having tried it a year earlier, and man, did I latch onto it. At first, it was the perfect way to silence all those voices in my head that were telling me I wasn't enough of whatever version of me I was supposed to be. But pretty soon, it was clear I was running away from something else. My friends had a front row seat to my changing persona. There'd be that trash can right by the lockers, and sometimes you'd be like sitting on the trash can, like clearly just totally blazed. And you would just be wow. there with, with kind of like your hat on and you'd be like, <laughs> and be like, oh, so I was just high. Jay was the quintessentially good-looking Brooks brother, the track star, and the dreamboat fantasy boyfriend who wore perfectly pressed khakis to school most days. But those weren't the reasons I was jealous of him. He never drank, never got high, still hasn't, and never seemed to do anything at all that bad because he had this confidence in himself that I didn't. I felt like my most concerned moments in high school was not the fact that you were getting high or screwing around or even the fact that you were kind of like slacking off in school a little bit because honestly senior year 
you know, that tends to happen, you know, the, the senior slide or whatever the hell it's called. Eric was the type of fiercely loyal friend who would let me know how he felt about the choices I was making. Most nights, I would go home and wonder why I needed to get so much more fucked up than everyone else. Why I couldn't seem to enjoy it and move on. I think the main concern for a lot of us then was when you kind of were becoming a caricature to other people in the school. Because, I mean, we, we didn't care. We, we loved you. We, you know, we knew who you were. But I think that's what really kind of bummed me out is Jay talking about that trash can that used to sit on kind of brought back that memory for me where, oh, Saji's on a trash can. You know, people that don't necessarily care about him are going to go up to him and fuck with him because they know that he's really high right now. I don't think it's any accident for Eric to have used the word caricature to describe me at that critical point in my life. We all had our ups and downs that year, but there was something else already going on with me, like this deep sense of shame and guilt about who I was and the choices I'd made. Kids like Jay and Eric, they were doing things like researching colleges, studying for the SATs, and shit like that. I felt like I wasn't on the same planet as any of them. I felt the same way about the other kids at Sunday school. I even felt distant from my family. I had no idea who I was becoming, and all of these pieces of me, the guitarist, the high school senior, the funny brown kid, the Daisy kid, the Muslim son, weren't really forming a cohesive whole person. And as I started to turn more and more inward, smoking weed was an emotional safety blanket of sorts that helped me avoid thinking about the future, about how awkward I was around girls, or about how I just didn't seem to fit in anywhere. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. All of these things were swirling around in my head at the same time that morning, as they often did, as Mrs. V fired up the overhead projector and began to write out the day's lesson with her red felt-tip pen on the erasable plastic sheet. Class was almost over when one of our classmates came running back from the bathroom, looking completely distraught, saying that we needed to turn on the TV right now. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. Right oh, now. there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right. Oh. oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. Another one just hit the building. Wow. It appears that uh, something hit. Uh, the Pentagon on the outside of the fifth corridor. We have a report now that a large plane crashed this morning in western Pennsylvania. We are a nation under siege. There are no words. While many moments from that day are a bit hazy, I do remember the physical tensing up of my body. Kind of like when you narrowly avoid a car accident or you get some really bad news that just turns your stomach upside down. That's what I remember most about my classmate running back into the room, repeating over and over again, Oh my God, oh my God. I know she came in right toward the end of the period because the first plane hit the first tower at the World Trade Center in New York City at 8.46 a.m. And my next class, Psychology with Mr. Green, was at 9.05. He remembers how we ended up in the library before the bell rang with eyes glued to a TV on a rollout cart. And of course, we had no way of realizing that this had only just started. And so as we stood there together, we watched as the second plane hit the second tower. Wow. And it was in that moment that I think people realized like, wow, okay, this is, it's unclear what the extent of this is. Mm. It's very, that separateness that you often feel 
from a, a global event, um, it, it, I think people felt extremely vulnerable and very scared. Mr. Green and the rest of the faculty were in a particularly difficult situation as they, just like the rest of us, were trying to get a grasp of what was going on. We were put on the equivalent of lockdown. You know, in the world before there were a lot of school shootings, there was this. And so the, I guess the word is lockdown and figuring out if we were going to have parents come pick students up, if we were going to do buses, what we were going to do. And being charged with the job of helping students feel like it was going to be okay. And trying to reach into myself because I myself didn't know Mm. if it was going to be okay. I really, in that moment, wasn't sure what the extent of this was going to be. Teachers were running back and forth between classes and department centers, trying to refresh browsers on the handful of computers that were connected to the internet. Apparently, the CNN website wouldn't load, so they had their radios on as well. This just into our newsroom, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. At 9.37 a.m., another hijacked plane crashed into another building with people in it, this time at the Pentagon. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed, and four minutes later, another hijacked plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. 25 minutes after that, the North Tower fell to the ground, as it seemed a horrifying apocalyptic film was playing out before our very eyes. At 11.02 a.m., as New York City was getting evacuated, I should have been sitting in a C programming classroom. But instead, an attack on the United States was unfolding minute by minute. At 12.16 p.m., when I would have been smoking a cigarette after lunch on any other day, the U.S. was officially closing its airspace, like shutting it all down, like no flights anywhere at all. At this point, it was clear that there was a massive loss of life. But no one knew whether the scale was in the hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands. And you have to remember that we had no way of knowing if or when the attacks would stop. No one anywhere in the country felt safe. The unthinkable happened today. The World Trade Center, both towers, gone. We would eventually learn that there were a couple of people from the AB community that were on American Airlines Flight 11 the first plane to hit. One of the losses was somebody that I knew. His son had been a camper that I had worked with very closely at Camp Neshoba. And so it was really the first time in my life that I had had a, a loss like that. And I don't want to exaggerate it. It's not that I was close to this kid's dad, but for years, this kid's dad had put him on the bus to camp. You know, there had wow. been almost sort of a daily wave and a contact with this family. The other community member was a flight attendant who we now know, quote, called a ground supervisor by airphone and relayed information about the hijackers that gave the FBI a head start on the investigation, end quote. Both were parents with families who lived in the same town as my family, drove on the same streets that we did every day. We couldn't shake the sense that although we were a couple of hundred miles away from New York City, this quickly became a local tragedy as well as a national one. As the school day was drawing to a close at 2.18 p.m., Jay was sitting in Mr. Green's other class, U.S. History. Last period, eighth period, I had history with Mr. Green. And I'll never forget, he said, starting off the class, he just goes, we need to talk. And I'll never forget him saying that. Because it was basically, you know, the world is changing because of what happened today. And we have no idea what's going to happen. Like, I, I get, like goosebumps just thinking about that. So as horrendous as it was, I felt like I wanted to remind people that we were in Acton. We were not in New York. We were not in a major city. 
that the likelihood of this um, coming home to us in the way we were all really afraid of was not high and that we would be safe. But I'll tell you, man, that was really, that was tough. In, until COVID, I would say that that was the most traumatic thing that has ever happened in my career. Horrifying breadth of the terror becoming clear. Before it is over, the casualty figures will be numbing. So often in the past, we've been able to say it could have been worse. Tonight, this time, it's hard to imagine how. Eventually, I made it back home where my aunt and cousins, who just happened to be visiting from Pakistan, were glued to the TV along with my mom. I found out that they all had actually planned to drive down to New York that morning, as my cousin Sadia called it the most shocking experience of her life. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I cannot describe the feeling of shock and paranoia at the same time. Uh, you know, we had, of, of course, uh, trying to figure out, uh, start calling people, uh, people we knew in New York and uh, the guys that I was supposed to uh, go and stay there with. Uh, all in all, it was just unbelievable, actually. After that, I think that our entire holiday mode had completely changed. Sadia's sister, Meru. Well, at that time, I think I didn't realize. I was pretty young. I think I was 17 years old. So I did not realize what what happened. Till a few hours later, everything shut down and I was just freaking out, thinking that we were about to go there and probably that was going to be the first thing we would go and see. It was quite traumatic. This was actually their first trip to America. We'd always gone to Pakistan to see them, but they'd never been here to see our home and our life in Boxborough. It had been so nice to have them around for a few weeks, especially for my mom, who doesn't have any other blood relatives in the U.S., to have their trip end like this was just unimaginable. It was as shocking for us as the next person. We were completely taken and saddened by the incident. My khala wanted to go there and to help out whatever way that she possibly can. But I was at least scared to step out of the house. And what's so frightening tonight is that there are people underneath that rubble, literally trapped alive. The priority now is getting to them. News would continue to come in for the rest of the day from New York, D.C., and Pennsylvania. As the first World Trade Center survivor was rescued at 3 p.m., we were all thanking God that my cousins didn't leave super early and make it in time, as was the original plan. We watched the news for the rest of that night and made phone calls to friends and family to make sure that they were okay and confirm that we were okay, probably like every other American. And then we waited, wondering what this would all mean, if it was all even over. At 8.30 p.m. that night, President George W. Bush gave an address to the nation. Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us. I don't remember feeling reassured by the president. All I remember is desperately wanting to smoke a joint and play guitar in my room like I did every other night. Anything to stop my mind from heading to the places it was already going. I couldn't quite put it into words, but it felt like I was somehow going to have to answer for what had happened. Like there was some other layer to all of this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Here's what the world knew the night of 9-11. There had been a highly coordinated terrorist attack on America involving four hijacked airplanes. 
This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. The scope of the death and destruction was unimaginable, and it was anyone's guess as to how many had died or been injured. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. There would be an immediate military response from the United States, the likes of which had perhaps never been seen before. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. And Muslims were already the primary suspects. Thank you, good night, and God bless America. What does it mean to be united? I feel like it demands something of people. A sameness, which is tricky if you already feel like you don't belong. I don't think I felt any real unity with any part of me on 9-11, even before the attack. I wasn't sure about my own values, and I can't say I ever had any real enemies. Just groups and cliques that I felt either indifferent to or slightly envious of. But I had no idea just how these questions of identity, belonging, and loyalty were about to be turned completely upside down. The morning of September 12th, there was an eerie sort of buzz around the school hallway. Kids were still standing in their normal pods, but there was an energy everywhere as students waited for some kind of announcement or assembly, knowing this wasn't going to be just another school day. As I approached my locker, a horrible feeling in my stomach, three guys were standing in my way, as if they'd been waiting for me. These three were always hanging out together, and I especially didn't like them because one was now dating a girl that had broken up with me, so I was already sort of on guard. He asked me a question which was, and is probably still, the single most defining moment of my young adult life. What did your people do? I brushed it off. I pretended like I didn't care and just walked away. Yet I was more afraid and confused than I had ever been in school. More than ever before in my life, actually. And then my mind goes blank from there. That's all I remembered up until this year, when my parents told me what happened when I got home. I said, did something happen in the school? And you said, no, nothing happened in the school. So then, And you went to your room. And then you just said to me, I think about an hour or something after that, that, Amma, can you come to my room? So I went to your room and you started crying. And you said that, Amma, three or four boys in my own, from my own class, when I was going in the corridor, they came to me and they said to me with the finger like this, that what did you do in New York? Like this. And said, I didn't understand why did they do that to me, but they pointed the finger at me. Amma told Aga what had happened. Like me, they were also confused and scared, conflicted about whether or not, or even how, to say anything to the school. Amma says she really wanted to, but Aga didn't want to make a scene, so they instead brought it to an interfaith group they attended every month. The group was having an emergency meeting in the wake of the attack, and when the other members heard about it, they convinced my parents to tell the school. According to my folks, a couple of days later, the same three kids threatened me at a party we all happened to be at. During that birthday party, these four or five kids were, they were also there and they probably, they cornered you in the basement or something and they were threatening or trying to physically beat you up or something. Other friends at the party brought me home and let my parents know what had happened. And my folks tried to go back to the school with this new information. But according to my mom, they didn't do much. So then we did go to the principal. What was the principal's name? I remember his face, but I don't remember his name. 
and we went and we told him all of that. And what did he do? He didn't do anything. I, he said, we'll see if we can talk to the students or all that. But he never like did give them any punishment or anything and never told us what he did. I want to just stress something here. I have literally no recollection of the party, only the original incident, which I can remember like it was yesterday. The kid who interrogated me about my people was in the middle, but there was this other kid there, his menacing sidekick, whose name I had forgotten. Someone did harass you in high school, right? Yes. Yes. And I believe that same person's younger brother was in my graduating class. And I remember knowing that and being like, oh, I hate you. And he was one of the like star football players and like. This so me and so I had a call last week with Jay and Eric. We yeah. had forgotten. We, we flipped through the yearbook together on the podcast <laughs> and we tried to figure out who that was. And wow, I didn't know this piece. Yeah. He literally wore a green army jacket every day with a German flag on the side of it. And I'm thinking he's probably the one that was going to kick my ass at the party. Either him or his brother had some sort of tattoo that was like white power related or something. I remember being like, this is like out of like a high school musical, not high school musical, high school movie of like classic popular white dude, head of the football team is also like a Nazi and being like classic acting like that sucks. Nothing really came out of that. And this mm -hmm. kid is still here and his parents and he's probably the same. And I never had a single interaction with that kid. He probably doesn't even know that I went to high school with him. But I remember every time I saw him being like, I hate everything about you. It didn't get any easier for me. At some other point that first week following 9-11, back in calculus class, while we were all sharing thoughts or having like whatever sort of pre-class moment the faculty had decided we should have, another kid launched into his own expert analysis of how this had all the hallmarks of Islamic terrorism, even mentioning Osama bin Laden by name. Officials are saying that early investigation into this, these deadly attacks point to Islamic extremist and alleged terrorist mastermind Osama bin Laden. I'm pretty sure he threw the word Pakistan in there somewhere, just to really drive the point home. It seemed like overnight, nicknames like Dune Coon and the Pakistani with the terrorist death ray were becoming part of my everyday life. And although that last one basically sounds like a superhero, I mean, who doesn't want a death ray? It was all super overwhelming. And sometimes... Even the teachers would laugh. It seemed like the only solution for me was just to keep my head down, play my guitar, and keep smoking my weed. I just had to get through the rest of senior year, get into literally any college that would take me, and then I could move away and start all over again. Nine Eleven was a cataclysmic act of unimaginable violence for Americans. Almost 3,000 human beings died in the span of a few hours. At least 6,000 were injured on the day itself, and thousands more suffered from long-term physical, psychological, and emotional traumas, many of which will never heal. For those of us that came of age during that time, it's hard to overemphasize that it wasn't just another tragic historical event, but literally the event that changed our lives forever. It was almost like hitting a reset button reminding us all how globalized and vulnerable we are, how none of us exist in a vacuum, that our place in the world as individuals is also defined by things that happen to people we may know nothing about. That day also changed how Americans looked at each other, and for many, created a sense of national identity and patriotism that was stronger than ever before. Immediately following the attack, approval ratings for the president shot up to 90%, as legislation like the Patriot Act, the detentions at Guantanamo Bay, 
the idea of a global war on terror, and an entirely new Department of Homeland Security began to flood our media and guide the national conversation about how we were going to respond to them, the people that did this to us, the people that those three assholes were grilling me about. The continuing threat of terrorism, the threat of mass murder on our own soil, will be met with a unified, effective response. 9-11 also, unfortunately, forever solidified the association between Islam and terrorism in the global conversation about political violence. Anyone that had even the most remote association with or passing resemblance to Muslimness of any kind was now a target. We were now public enemy number one. As President Bush himself said, you were either with us or against us. And the facts didn't matter. No one cared about the nuances. Muslims everywhere had been put into the against us category. I had talked to Allah about it at one point. We were going for um, Sunday school and he was just in his very serious way, just, you know, saying, you know, do you understand that there was this huge tragedy? Blah, blah, blah. I said, yes, I know. My sister muddy him again. You know, it was, it was, I'm sure you've had those discussions with him where he mostly talks and you sort of nod along. Mm-hmm. But um, I felt like he wanted to just say those things out loud to me that like, as your dad, I'm reminding you we're Muslim and this is not what Muslims believe and this was a tragedy. And I was like, okay, thank you. Aga doesn't remember the specific conversation, but it sounds like he wasn't just trying to assure Mariam. He was speaking to everyone at the same time. To those guys who confronted me the next morning, to the school, to the towns of Acton and Boxborough, to the citizens of Massachusetts, and maybe to America as a whole. The real question was, would anybody listen? I mean, the Muslims are going to end up falling, you know, and it's only going to be God's people that are going to make it. So, I mean, if you're a Muslim, you're in trouble, you know. I mean, so that's the way I see it. 20 years later, we're still fighting these same battles, trying to complicate awfully simple narratives that put Muslims at the center of the conversation around 9-11. It's not a stretch to say 9-11 really fucked with the collective identity of the American Muslim community. For years, I struggled with my place in the world as a Pakistani-American Muslim, and that's part of the reason I broke down crying just looking at that picture of my nana in Pakistan nearly a decade later. Americans' acceptance of Muslims has continued to deteriorate since the attacks, and although Muslim Americans have responded with resilience through the countless instances of othering, discrimination, and hate crimes, there's been a good amount of depression and anxiety too. But we have persevered. The same can be said for me and my journey over the last two decades, which I'm honored to share with you over the coming weeks. The King of the World podcast will weave together a snapshot of what it was like for me and other American Muslims to come of age in a post 9-11 world. Like millions of other American Muslims, I had no idea just how much that one day would impact my life, whether I liked it or not. Next time on King of the World. I don't know whether you remember or not, but I had a dream about it that you're going to be lying in a ditch. I said this. Lying in a ditch was the word I used. King of the World is a production of Rafelion Media. Today's show was produced by me and Asad Butt with sound design and sound mixing by Mark Anato. Lindsay Gamble is our associate producer. We had production help from Isabel Havens, Mona Baloch, and Erica Reif. Theme song by me, with production help, mixing, and mastering by Nick Sampiello. Original music by Simon Hutchinson. Special thanks to Anna Chang, Eric Malinsky, 
Mr. Green, my friends Jay and Eric, my cousins Sadia and Meru, and of course, my family, Amma, Aga, Mariam, and Nuna. To learn more about the series, check out our website, www.refelion.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Shah Jahan Khan.